All right, guys, well, we're, we're in a series at the moment, as you'd know, if you're visiting, you wouldn't, called Sanctifying the Ordinary. We're just trying to take topics um, that do stand alone, some of them whom are just ordinary, so things like speech, things like sleep and disappointment. Next week, Mark's going to be speaking on conflict, and so that's quite an ordinary thing that does indeed happen in our lives. And other topics, they are ordinary, but the premise we're taking is they're actually extraordinary things that we make ordinary. The things like prayer, things like the Bible, and things like church, which is what I want to talk about this morning. So I'd be grateful if you'd turn with me, please, to the book of Ephesians. In the New Testament, there are many, many metaphors used for the church. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27, we see the church called a body, a body that's made up of many parts. And as each part does its work and each part brings its different gifting, the body together then is Jesus. So we actually are Jesus in the world for the glory of the Lord and the way we live as each part actually does its work. In Ephesians 2 verse 21, we see the church called a temple. A temple made up of many stones from different backgrounds, different types of people, different giftings, but many stones that are being built together by the Lord as a dwelling place for God. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, the apostles and prophets and then we wonder when we get to like Ephesians 4 and 5, who are they? Well, they're the apostles and prophets of the Old Testament. And they're the foundation on which everybody now builds for the glory of the Lord, built into a temple by God. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, we see the church called a flock. It's talking again about how we're a group of sheep and how we've been given under shepherds, which are called pastors or elders, but how ultimately we all fall under the care of the one good shepherd, Jesus Christ himself as the leader of every church and the leader of the flock. And in 1 John 4, we see church as a family. Sometimes people say, our oh, church just feels like family. And you think, that's lovely. But it doesn't just feel like family. As biblically defined, it is family. That's why when we call each other brother or sister, it's not just like a Christian term. It's actually because they are your brother and they are your sister before the Lord because church is also a family. But the metaphor that, that I think is so striking that I want us to look at this morning is the metaphor of the church being a bride. So I think it's that metaphor where we really discover the Saviour's love for the church, the Saviour's commitment to the church, the Saviour's, indeed, passion for the church. And Ephesians 5, verse 25, then, it says as follows. Paul's addressing husbands, but this is what he says. He says, husbands, love your wives. Well, how, Paul? Love your wives as... Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know, you don't have to be married to get a feel and a sense from that description of how Jesus really thinks about the church, how passionate he is about it. Just yesterday, I had the privilege of marrying Ian and Emma, and it doesn't take long when you're looking at a groom's face to realize he is ecstatic right now. As Emma's coming down the aisle and Ian's here, he was positively glowing. I mean, it's like a Moses moment for him, clearly. His face was shining. He is so happy. And when he turns around to face me, he is still so happy. But I could barely get his attention because he's just looking at Emma and he's like, I need to talk to me now because it's I will to me. But he's so ecstatic about what has just taken place. He's seen his bride. He's seen this woman whom he loves coming towards him and he loves her with a steadfast, passionate love. He is truly passionate about Emma. And biblically defined, the Saviour is truly passionate 
about the church. Here's then the question that I want you to consider, church. If Jesus is so clearly and evidently passionate about the church, if the maker of heaven and earth, the one that breathed out the sun and breathed out the stars and then formed the church, if the Savior is so evidently passionate about the church, even to the point of sacrificing his whole life for her, if the Savior is so clearly and evidently passionate about the church, does my life reflect a similar passion for the church? All the way through the New Testament, we're called to be imitators of Christ. We're called to be conformed to his image. He was and is passionate about the church. So am I. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I thank you for your word. And Lord, I do thank you for the way you use metaphors in your word. It helps us understand and grasp how you feel about things and how you feel about people. Oh Lord, there's no doubt that you are passionately in love with the church. Lord, would you help us then today as we examine our own lives to consider, am I imitating you in this? Am I like you in the way that your passions are my passions and my passions are your passions? Lord, help us to, to examine ourselves in the light of Scripture by your grace and for your glory. Amen. You know, I'm aware for some of you, You've had me ask that question before because it's something that we do look at on starting point. And so for some of you, you'll be thinking, hey, I think we've done this before. And that's true. But here's the thing. I think this is something where, we, where our hearts regularly dust over. My wife bought me this great iPod speaker for, for Christmas, and I really like it. And it's like one of my treasures. And it's jet black, which, is, which I really like because it's just so masculine. It's like, yeah. So, so it, sits on my, it sits on my bedside cabinet, and, and I like to dust it regularly and I you know I get a little sock out at the end of the day and give a little row and you think oh that's just that's the way men treat their their treasures have a sock so I wipe the dust off this and, and it's all good and then like a day later or two days later you think it's, it's got dusty again I can't believe it I've just dusted it and you're always dusting it off I think our hearts can go like that even on topics that we're passionate about and we think I've heard this before but then it's as we examine ourselves in light of scripture again we realize you know what my heart needs dusting again I have got distracted. I have moved off. For others of you, you've probably never heard this question asked at all. And so this is new for you completely. And I trust for all of us, as we go through this, then we would see it by God's grace with new eyes. But here's the question. If Jesus is so clearly and evidently passionate about the church, does my life reflect a similar passion for the church? It can be hard to get our hands around, can't it? It turns out, I think so. Maybe. Not sure. So there's five points I want to look at today of what a person passionate about the church is really like. And I want you to evaluate yourself in light of that person. And as we do that, I want you to evaluate yourself and not the person next to you. Okay, this isn't a moment for for our spouses to be thinking, oh, oh, thank you, Jesus, this is just what they need. Okay, that isn't the point. The point is to evaluate yourselves before the Lord. And so here's the first thing, point one. A person passionate about the church lives to see Jesus Christ glorified. A person passionate about the church, they live to see Jesus Christ glorified. At the end of the 1997 United States pro basketball season, all eyes went on to a player by the name of Scotty Pippen. See, Scotty Pippen became famous for all the wrong reasons. He was a good player, but he played for the Chicago Bulls, 
And in one of the final games that he played of the 97 season, they were two points down. And Tony Kukoc, um, so Bill Jackson, as their coach, pulls over the whole team, two points down, there's a few seconds on the clock, time out. And he explains that, you know what? I want Tony Kukoc to shoot a three-pointer. So we're going to get you all into position, and I want Tony Kukoc to shoot the three-pointer. The, the clock will go to zero, and we'll win the game. This is the game plan. Coaches called it. So they all go running on, apart from Scotty Pippett. And the coach is like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm not playing. So they have to replace him with somebody else. And they go on, and they pass the ball to Tony Kukoc. He shoots the three-pointer. Everybody goes crazy. Everybody's really happy. They win the game. But all eyes, and actually all cameras, are on Scotty Pippett. This is problem. He's sitting out the game. He doesn't want to play in these final, final few moments of these great finals. Well, the coach is then interviewed after the game, and the person with the mic says, what's Scotty Pippen's problem? Why didn't he go back on? Why didn't you use him? And he simply said, you know what? Scotty refused to play because the game plan wasn't going to be centered around him. Scotty Pippen wanted to be a star player. And so if the game plan didn't make him a star... He's not even willing to play. He didn't want to come on. You know, for us folks, as we look at the church, as we look at God's plan for the church, we are looking at the most incredible plan you've ever seen in your entire life. It is absolutely breathtaking when you study Ephesians and you see in the context of the book of Ephesians what church really is, how God is taking people from all races and backgrounds and genders and bringing us together as a family, a body, a bride of Christ. But I submit to you, you will never be passionate about the local church until you realize the plan isn't all about you. You're not the center of the plan. Jesus Christ is the center of the plan. He is the star player and not any of us. And that's what we see in the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is really the Apostle Paul's masterpiece on the church. In it, he helps us see that we were once dead in our transgressions and sins, but how God made us alive together with Christ and brought us together in the context of a local church, of the church, as the bride of Christ, a venue in then we can gather around the gospel and apply the gospel to our everyday living of our lives. But in chapter 1, he makes it very clear that, you know what, church? This isn't all about you. It's all about Jesus. Look at Ephesians 1, verses 3. Notice how many times the phrase him or he comes out. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, Things in heaven and things on earth. Do you get the point? It's all about him. He's the star player. He's the one in every sentence. He's the one in every phrase. He continues in verse 22. And he put all things under his feet 
and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ephesians is God's grand design for the church. Ephesians, he explains to us at length how God is taking us and bringing us together into the context of a bride of Christ. But right up front, he's making it real clear to us that you will never be the star player and that the church is never finally and ultimately about you. It's all about him. It's all about Jesus. It's all about seeking his praises and making sure his glories go forward. So Paul begins by making this book begin by explaining that it's all about Christ. In our adoption, in our justification, in our redemption, in our forgiveness, it's all through Christ, it's all in Christ, it's all because of Christ. Jesus Christ is the star player. You know, just as an aside then, that's just one of the reasons why we all have to deal with the Scotty Pippins of our hearts. Because we can think sometimes... The church is all about me. I just don't think this church is serving me very well. Well, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. Is the church serving Jesus well? Is his name going forward? And Well, yeah, but Dave, you know, you commented a few weeks ago and you honoured a few people and you never mentioned me. Yeah, it's because it's not about you. It's about Jesus and that's okay. It's all right. You know what, I, I don't mind being in the setup team, but it's all right. But I could do with a bit more of a role, you know, like a role where people can see me a little bit. And, oh, yeah, okay. Well, it's really not about people seeing you. It's about Jesus. It's about them seeing the body and, and seeing this body grow and become more and more like Jesus. And Do you ever feel tempted in those things? I do. I think there's a Scotty Pippin in all of our hearts to different degrees and different ways. We want some glory. We want some acclaim. We want some recognition. And sometimes we like to pretend that we don't, that we're actually okay. But it reveals itself when somebody else gets an accolade that actually we did. Have you ever had that happen? I have. It's nasty. And somebody else gets thanked for something where you think, I did that. That was my idea. And Scotty Pippin comes out. Like, hang on. And you just want to stand up in the middle of the service. That was me. But you know, I can't because I'm humble. I'm humble. But inside, you're, you're seething, which shows you're not humble at all. And so you go home and you tell your wife, I cannot believe it. I cannot. Scotty Pippin. It doesn't matter if when you die, nobody remembers your name. As long as they remember the name of Jesus. And they see that it was all about him. And something's been built for him. And a person, I think, who is passionate about the church understands that. And so they live then to see Jesus Christ glorified. That's all they want. I think particularly in America, one of the challenges is, is me church, that everything's about me and the church is centered around me. Biblically defined, the church is centered around Jesus. We all fit in after that. We all just play our parts. But he's the one that all accolades should gain. So number one, a person passionate about the church lives to see Jesus Christ glorified. Number two, a person passionate about the church rejoices that it is God's plan to redeem a people. A person passionate about the church rejoices that it is God's plan to redeem a people. One of the truly beautiful things about the local church is that God in grace saves individuals, and then he brings people together. He not only justifies, he joins people together 
into a community, into a family called the church. It's what we see all the way through the book of Ephesians. So Ephesians chapter 2, let's look there, eyes down, chapter 2, verses 19. He says, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you see that? No longer strangers and aliens. That's what you used to be. That's what you used to be before the Lord, and that's what you used to be to one another. But not anymore. No longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens, members, household. Do you see the words he's using? He's bringing people together. You're now together in these things, and you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You know, it's when you see that, that I think it's so easy to see then how incomplete and and narrow the common idea of Jesus and me, sort of lone ranger Christianity really is. It just doesn't fit in with the biblical context. And yet certainly in Britain, and I'm sure it happens here as well. In fact, I know it does because I meet people that happens. You, you talk to them and, hey, you know, what do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. It's hard to hide behind that one. I'm a pastor. Um, oh, oh, I'm a Christian. Oh, great. Where do you go to church? Oh, I, I don't do church, you know, but I'm just a Christian. And, oh, okay. So, so who are you kind of devoted to? and Who do you pray with? And who do you gather with to sing God's praises and, and pray together and intercede before the Lord and hear the preach word? Something that... Christians have done for years. Who are you really connected to and committed to? <laughs> no, you know, church. I'm just a Christian. The Bible has no context for Christian, lone ranger Christians. There's nowhere in the Bible that that, that is ever seen. And it is, it's an oxymoron by very nature. It just doesn't work before the Lord. It's like a bride by themselves trying to be the bride of Christ. Okay, It'd be like Emma Paslitz yesterday saying, Hey, Emma, you look great. You're the bride. And, oh, I'm not just the bride. I'm the bride of Christ. Well, that's really odd because you just look like, like a bride. Or, or like somebody, you meet somebody and, and you say, Oh, you know, nice to meet you. It'd be like a son saying, Well, I'm just having a family gathering. Oh, really? Who's coming? Oh, myself. Um, I, I'm the family of God. Like, that's really weird. Or you go into, a, go into a field and you trip over a stone and imagine this stone can talk. Just humor me. Imagine this stone can talk and you say, oh, you're a stone. And he's like, I'm not a stone. I'm the temple of God. No, you're a, you're a stone. It, this is just weird. That's what it's like when you interact with people who by very nature decide that I'm just a Christian. Well, what are you a member of? Oh, universal church. Well, then you completely misunderstand Scripture. Because Scripture has us joined. Scripture has us members. Scripture has us part of households, fellow citizens for the glory of the Lord. God's plan is so much bigger than just you and I, my friends. It's together that we're the body. Festo Kevin Gary, an African missionary, says, The cutting of the stone is done, and you have been fitted in. That is how he is taking us. Stones of all races and backgrounds and fitting us together into a beautiful dwelling place for God. His plan is far bigger than any one individual. And yet through this plan, together as we're united together for the glory of the Lord, through this plan, God sends us on great mission. Great mission into the world. We are together his body. Do you get that? Sometimes people say, where's Jesus in the world? I'll tell you where he is. He's meant to be in the church. 
Because we're his body. As we come together and we unite together for the glory of the Lord. Ephesians 1, verse 22, which is his body. So he says, gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. He's saying the church, that's his body. You want to see Jesus in the fullness because he fills it? I'll get a part of a church. Where is Jesus in Sydney? In the church. It is the churches as they come together for the glory of the Lord, as we unite together for the glory of the Lord in our local setting, that people should be able to see Jesus. He's given us a mission as his body to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's not a pastor's responsibility. That is a body's responsibility. That is a local church's responsibility. Together, as we're united for the glory of the Lord, to take Jesus out into our communities. That's our mission in the world. We've also been given a mission out of this world, which I just think is super cool, because I've always wanted a mission, which is out of this world. And it's Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3, verse 10. Look at it. His intent was that now through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Wow. When the church gathers, when the church cares for one another and prays together and loves one another and shows devotion to one another, not only do our communities see Jesus Christ, but the very heavenly realms, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, turn for a moment from facing the Savior and worshipping the Savior. They peer over the edge of eternity to moments like this, to community groups like yours. And they see people who are once strangers and aliens towards one another. And they see people who, you guys are now caring for one another. You're bothered about each other. You're praying together. You're seeking to stir one another up towards encouragement and growing in godliness. The very angels and authorities in the heavenly realms are so impressed by that because they realize that's only because of God's grace. That's only because of his wisdom. And it fuels their worship all the more before the Savior. Do you see that? That is amazing. God has not called Christian unions in the school to do that. Not against them. It's not what we're called to do. He hasn't called Campus Crusade for Christ to do that. Not against it, but he hasn't called them to do that. It's local churches. It's local churches as they gather for the glory of the Lord and they show commitment to one another with a pastor and they have a group of people with them who are committed to the sacraments and a group of people who are truly devoted to one another for the glory of the Lord. That the very manifold wisdom is shown in the heavenly realms. And Jesus Christ is seen in our communities. I'll take that any day. It's amazing. It's amazing as God works in people. And a person passionate about the church rejoices that it is God's plan then to redeem a people. Because they see, that's amazing. That's amazing that I get to be a part of something so incredible. You mean, you mean the way I operate in life group can motivate an angel to praise the Lord all the more? Yeah, I do. You mean the way I, I care for the people in my, in my life group can affect our mission here in Sydney? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it does. Because people get to see Jesus as you're caring for one another. They're so affected and so amazed by that. They see something different in your midst. Number three, a person passionate about the church views their gifts and abilities as resources to serve the church. 
a person passionate about the church use their gifts and abilities as resources to serve the church. You know, one of the most wonderful and I think informative moments in the whole of God's word, in my opinion, is Matthew chapter 20. See, in Matthew chapter 20, we see Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. He has now set his course, it says. He set his face to Jerusalem. He's now on his way to sacrifice his life. But on the way, James's and John's mother wants to have a bit of a chat with the Saviour. And she wants to have a bit of a chat with him about what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And so she's, she's one of these kind of pushy mothers, you know, that you're just like, oh, she's really irritating. But she's following Jesus around, and she's really quite jealous that her boys would have a good place when Jesus gets into his kingdom. So she, she says, you know, Jesus, you know, we've been following you for a long time, and we're, we're really excited about that. It's really good. But here's the thing. And when we get into the kingdom, when you get into the kingdom, which she thinks is Jerusalem, and then they're going to take over the Romans, when you get into the kingdom, you know, my boys, they, re- they really like you. They're big fans. Uh, James and John, can, can they sit at your right hand and your left? Those are places of incredible honor if somebody's going to be kinged. Can he sit there? You know, that's the most remarkable moment. Because just prior to that, Jesus has told them that I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. For a start, it shows the mum wasn't listening. Neither was James and John. Because they were right next to him. James and John weren't like, Mom, hang on, he's going to die. They don't understand what's going on yet. And so they stand before the Saviour. He's just told them, I'm going to die. Now they're coming to vie for position. I would have wanted to rip their heads off right there and then. Are you kidding me? I've just told you I'm going to die. But such grace and compassion comes from the Saviour. He realises this is a teaching moment. This is a moment to help them and show them really what true greatness is. And so Matthew 20, verse 26, he looks them all in the eye and he says, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. See, true greatness, according to the Savior, has nothing to do with position. True greatness, according to the Savior is serving others. Because that's what he did. He laid his life down for others. And he calls us then, within the context of that scripture, to do the same. You know, one primary context for that then, for those that are married, is obviously our married lives, our spouses. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. That's what we're called to do as husbands. And wives were called to love our husbands by following them and honoring them and supporting them in, in all that they do. In Ephesians chapter 6, he then addresses parents and children. And he talks to them about, you know what, parents, treasure your children. And children, respond in obedience to your parents for the glory of the Lord. One primary place of serving without any doubt scripturally defined are our families. But the other primary context without any doubt is the church. The local church. And he says this then in Ephesians 4, verse 16. He says, from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I love that verse. And Exodus chapter 28, it's like an Old Testament version of it. In Exodus chapter 28, there's a whole scene where God is, is, 
basically helping them to understand how they're going to build the tabernacle. And he says at one point, you know what, tell all the skilled men to whom I have given wisdom in such matters to come and serve me. He wants to make it clear that, you know what, all of your skill, all of your gifts and abilities, that's from me. So tell them, come and do some work for me because I'm like bagging in now on the different gifts and abilities I've given them. I want them to come and serve me. And so he makes it clear to them, look, you know, Aaron and his sons are going to need this and we're going to need to build this around the tent. And OK, so who can do this? I know you can do it because I gave you that gift. And he's basically calling all these people together and say, now, serve me. In Ephesians chapter four, he's in effect doing exactly the same. But he's saying, you know what? You're now all involved because I've given you all gifts. Ephesians two, verse 10, I've created good works for all of you to do. 1 Corinthians, he tells us that to each has been given a manifestation of spirit. Everybody's been gifted. Everybody's been gifted in one way or another. In Ephesians 4, then, he brings it all together and says, you know what, then? Get connected. Get committed for the glory of the Lord. Get joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. And serve me. Because when each part is working properly, the body will grow and build itself up in love. Do you see that? Serving the church is indeed true greatness. Does it matter what part we play? It doesn't matter at all. Jesus is the star player. It's not like any one of us is going to go into our life group and it'd be like, oh my gosh, we can start now, they're here. You know, we're not that important. We're just parts. Jesus is the star. And after that, we're all just servants then. I'll do anything. Who cares? I just want to serve Jesus. I want to make his name great. It is important when you understand the context of Ephesians chapter 4. It's important that we get connected and committed in, isn't it? It's very clear there. The words joined, held together by every joint. There's a commitment and a connection factor where people are coming together and saying, I'm with these guys and I'm going to give myself in a devoted relationship to, to these guys. And it's important then that we play our parts within those areas. Hey, Folks, I'd have to say for you as a church, I thank God for the way you serve. You're incredible servants. And you really are. Both in the context of church as we gather on a Sunday, but way more outside of that too. And the way you love one another, the way you care for one another, the way you give yourself to one another. You've impressed me. And when I grow up, I want to be like you. Just think you impress me in the way you genuinely serve the Lord and, and you're not that bothered about, well, who does what roles? You know, whatever. Let's just make Jesus great. Let's just, let's just get his name out there in our community and let's make sure that people understand in our communities that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I thank God for the way you serve and I encourage you, just do it all the more. And as you consider doing it all the more, here's what I want you to understand. When you serve there's maybe no bigger moment in your life where you imitate the Savior more. Because he was a servant. And he gave his life as a ransom for many. You know that, that phrase there, Matthew 20? The servant he's talking about is a bond servant. It's really, it's really a scene of right at the bottom of a slave ship, the lowest level, and the guys on the oars. They were called bond servants. That's what he's talking about there. He said, you know, I'm just here to serve. I'll do whatever. I just love people. And so they can have my entire life. It's never been about position. It's always about just playing a part. 
and serving for the glory of the Lord. And a person then who is passionate about the church, I think, views their gifts and abilities as resources to serve the church. Realizing that the gifts and abilities that I have, they've all been given by the Lord. And so where is my primary place then that I can serve with these gifts so that his name can be great? Oh, hey, guess what? The church, the body that I'm a part of. So I'm going to use every gift I've got and every ounce of energy to serve this body so that we can make the name of Jesus Christ great in our communities. Can you imagine what a church is like when everybody does that? I'll tell you what it's like. Read Acts. That's what it's like. It's powerful. People, for the glory of God, spending their lives in the context of church. Things were built. Being passionate about the church then, without doubt, involves playing our parts. Playing our parts to build the body up in love. And yet the truth is as well, I think it is more than that too. Here's number four. A person passionate about the church is also consistently aware of how much they need the church. A person passionate about the church is is not just busy serving the church. They're constantly aware of how much they need her, how much they need the bride, how much they need the body around them. See, as we say on starting point, in a very real sense, the church is an army. And I love that side of things. I, would love, I want Sovereign Grace Church, I want for us to be missional in the way we see life. I want us to gather together for the glory of the Lord and as an army, get out there and tell people about Jesus. And build structures and build local churches by God's grace all over Australia that are passionate about the gospel going forward. That has to take an army mentality for it to work. It is missional, it is strong, it is getting on with it. It's like a scene out the Patriot. Okay, That's what we're talking about. And in the Bible, you see that in Acts, as men are going forward and saying, let's do this, let's plan this, let's build this for the glory of the Lord. And the church is like that. In another sense, the church is a family. And it is, and I appreciate that. I love that about it. That we're not just serving alongside lieutenants and sergeants, we're serving alongside friends, people who we dearly care about. I mean, our group is, we've just had a life group change. That's been painful enough as it is. We're not going to see some of the guys this Wednesday, and I want to see them this Wednesday. It's because you're you're family. You're getting tired. You're bothered about people. So you're aware, though, well, we're also an army and we're growing, so okay, we'll let them go, but don't let anybody else join. And then you realize, oh, no, we're an army. They're meant to join. We understand there's different contexts for what we do. But in another sense, I submit to you that the church is also a hospital, and it is. See, God in his grace has not chosen and drawn people to himself who are independent superstar Christians. And if you are an independent superstar Christian, you won't fit in this church because you will be alone. Because the rest of us aren't like that. He doesn't seem to have pulled together independent, perfect, super Christians. You know what he's pulled together in the context of local churches? People with challenges, people with deficiencies, people with weaknesses, People just like their pastor. And as such, we need each other, don't we? When we get sad, we need others around us to encourage us and be Jesus to us. When we're struggling in our walk with the Lord, we need people to come and challenge us and and applaud us on before the Lord. When we're blowing it, we need brothers and sisters to come alongside us and ask us questions and seek to care for us. And when we're completely blowing it, We need sometimes people to stand toe-to-toe with us and say, enough, this is not right. 
And when we're just tired and worn out and exhausted, we need others to be Jesus to us in that moment and come and care for us and pray for us and stand with us. Quite literally, we need each other, don't we? We really need each other. A wonderful illustration I heard some time ago that I think illustrates this need wonderfully is by Donald Gray Barnhouse. He says as follows. Several years ago, two students graduated from Chicago Kent College of Law. The highest ranking student in the class was a blind man named Overton. And when he received his honour, he insisted that half the credit go to his friend Caprizac. They had met one another in school when the armless Mr. Caprizac had guided the blind Mr. Overton down a flight of stairs. This acquaintance ripened into a friendship and a beautiful example of interdependence. The blind man carried the books, which the armless man read aloud in their common study. And thus the individual deficiency of each was compensated by the other. After their graduation, they planned to practice law together. I love that. You know what, folks? Sovereign Grace Church is filled with Overtons and Caprizacs. There isn't any one of us here that's got it all together. There are blind people and armless people all around this room. We need each other. We need each other for the glory of the Lord. We're not only an army. We're not only a family. But we're a hospital. And we've got to understand each other's deficiencies and not complain about those things, but delight that, hey, I'm not deficient in that area, so I can help you in that area, but I'm real deficient in this area, and I need help from you in this area. That's family. That is family for the glory of the Lord. Reuben Welch says, Of course we believe in the total adequacy of Jesus Christ to meet the total need of the total person, but we must remember this also. He saves in the context of the community of faith. It isn't Jesus and me. It is Jesus and we. Amen. It is. And a person passionate about the church then is consistently aware of how much they need the church. They need her. Number five and finally then. A person passionate about the church builds their life around the church. Now, if all what I've just talked about is true, if we actually stand on God's word and stand on the book of Ephesians alone, if this is really true, if Jesus really is the star player and the one to whom we are to give our lives and ensure that as we gather with other people, he is truly glorified, if the church really is the center of God's plan for redemption, if the church really is, as biblically defined, the home of the gospel, and the venue through which missions should take place for the glory of the Lord and churches are planted around the globe. If the church really is called to serve together and to bring together all the gifts of the individual parts and have a pastor who equips the saints for works of ministry and they then do the works of ministry so the church grows and builds itself up. And if the church really is so important that we need it each and every day in our lives, then I submit to you that as Christians... This should radically affect the way we live, should it not? If this is true and we dare to believe it as a local church, I think this changes everything. Because you realize the church is everything then. The church is vital in God's plan of redemption. The church is a primary place where I'm meant to use my gifts and abilities for the glory of the Lord. I need the church. 
It should affect the decisions we make, where we, where we spend our time, what we do with our money, what we do with our energy. John Stott says it this way. I love it. He says, If the church is central to God's purpose, as seen in both history and the gospel, it must surely also be central to our lives. Listen to this. How can we take lightly what God takes so seriously? How dare we push to the circumference what God has placed at the center? Folks, don't you love that? It's challenging, right? But it's true. If this is real, if Jesus is the star player, that the church is the vehicle through which the God's plan of redemption is to function and go forward, we really need each other and we're meant to use our gifts and abilities to help build her, then how dare we move it to the circumference and just have it as a periphery optional in our lives when God said, this is central in your life. You've become a Christian? Amen to that. Fantastic, because I saved you. Now take up your cross and follow me. Join a church and let's do life. That is the crazy love living of the book of Acts. John Stott continues. In decision making then, God wants to guide us. He is not any less concerned about where you're going to work or where you're going to live or who you're going to marry. And he will guide you if you seek and follow him. But don't make decisions outside of understanding that God's church is at the center of his passion and his plan. It is outside of this nucleus that God will reveal to you where you're to fit in. You know what, as I came across that, and as I read that again this week and meditated on that, I thought, you know what, that is a radical statement. What he's saying there in entirety, if this is true, that the church is meant to be central to God's plan and is central to God's plan, and therefore it needs to be central to my life, that is an incredibly radical statement to make. If then we're saying that, you know what, therefore my whole life, the church needs to be a major value in my life and I need to give major resources to serving the church. If that is true, I think it is radical and I think we can all perceive it as radical. But the more you study scripture, the more you realize that isn't radical, that's just biblical. It's just we've changed. And we've succumbed to the world in so many things and decided, I give the church a bit, but I really want that. Whereas Jesus says, you're saved, I want your life. Christianity is free, and it will cost you everything. That's the way it is. He died for us. We take him as our king. That means something. It means we have a king now. That we say, okay, my life isn't my own. It's yours. What do you want me to do? And we read the book of Ephesians and we realize, oh, I, I see what I'm meant to do. I'm meant to give myself passionately to the church because you are passionate about the bride of Christ. And as I imitate you, I need to do likewise. I need to love her like you did. I need to be passionate about her like you were and still are. Folks, John Stott is not saying, therefore, that we have to check every decision we make with a pastor or with a life group leader. John Stott is not saying that we couldn't possibly misgroup, otherwise our passion for the church is brought into question. And we couldn't possibly move away from the church that we found because well, we'll probably be sitting. He's not saying that. That would be reading way into it. But what he is saying is if the church is so important, how dare we move it to the circumference when God's placed it at the center? It needs to be a major factor in all the decisions we make and all the things we consider in our lives because that's the way God has made it. And so, 
If Jesus is so clearly and evidently passionate about the church, if Jesus so evidently loved the church enough to lay his life down for her, does my life reflect a similar passion for the church? Does my life reflect a similar passion for the group of people that you see sitting around you today? Folks, if it does, then praise God. And I think for many of you, it probably does. And I think that's wonderful. Praise God. What an evidence of grace in your life where you can look at those different things and think, you know what, yeah, I think I am like that. I I think those are the things that I'm trying to work on. They are the aim of my life. I do want to give my life away for the glory of the Lord within the context of the local church. If it does reflect you, you are passionate about the church, then praise God. But if it doesn't, if as we've gone through this this morning, you have seen yourself in the mirror of God's word, And you realize, I am not there. Then I want to encourage you, let grace-motivated, genuine change now take place in your life. Grace-motivated. Because however much you change does not reflect the Savior's love towards you. He sings over you passionately because he died in your place. You've now been fully reconciled and accepted by the Lord. He sings over you with praise and thanksgiving and his love and mercy will chase you down every day of your life. So any change needs to be grace motivated because however much we change or however little we don't change, it doesn't reflect his passion towards you. It's scandalous grace. But the change nonetheless, I think, needs to be genuine where we realize I'm not passionate about the bride of Christ like that. It needs to be genuine because this is his bride. It's his bride that he chose before eternity passed. It's his bride that he set his affection on and then brought back from sin and death, even though that it cost him his own life. And it's his bride that even now he gently and patiently sanctifies cleanses and prepares for himself with a love that is zealous and unchanging and steadfast and truly passionate. And so if we truly want to be like him, that's what he's like. John Stott then, just to close. He says, on earth, speaking of the church, she is often in rags and tatters, stained and ugly, despised and persecuted, But one day she will be seen for what she is. Nothing less than the bride of Christ, free from spots, wrinkles or any other disfigurement, holy and without blemish, beautiful and glorious. It is to this constructive end that Christ has been working and is continuing to work to this day. My friends, Christ is passionate about the church. And by God's grace then, would would we be too? Let's pray. Well, Lord, I do thank you for the church. I thank you for your bride. Lord, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were running away from you. And yet in grace, you saved us. You came after us, even unto death on the cross. And as you saved us through the gift of faith, you didn't then just send us out as lone rangers. You brought us together into the context of families. Local churches, all of whom reflect the greater universal church. Oh Lord, as we consider then our local church, Lord, help us to be passionate about this church.
Lord, would we, would we give our lives to you? Lord, would there be no area of our lives which we've decided sinfully that that's just my bit? Lord, if we've truly given our lives to you, have it all. Lord, in many ways, I, I think that's a scary prayer. But Lord, if we're going to live crazy love, we've got to be radical. Lord, if this is true, which I believe with all my heart it is, that you died for us, Lord, would we then die to you every day of our lives? Would we go after you with passion and energy and resource and strength? And Lord, however then you use our lives, however you use our gifts, that's your call. But Lord, did you have it all? And would you truly then be the star player? Because you're worthy of it all. Amen.